This is an ABC podcast. Cricket in the 1930s is famous for the scandalous Bodyline series. When the English tried to stop the mighty Don Bradman by bowling at the man, not the wicket. But the Bodyline controversy wasn't the only big thing happening in cricket in the 1930s. There was another groundbreaking series played between Australia and England. But in this case, the players were a group of talented young women. Dr Marion Stell is a sports historian and a cricket tragic. And she met many of the women from these very first test series when they were aged in their 70s and 80s. Marion found a group of women from all kinds of families and homes. Some had been factory workers and others were the privileged daughters of law professors. They were women who didn't like to brag about their sporting accomplishments and certainly not to sledge any other players. They were proud of their achievements, but they were just as keen to talk about seeing the coronation of George VI on their tour of England and about the weirdness of being waited on by maids and butlers as they were to reminisce about the cricket matches they played in England. Marion's book is The Bodyline Fix, How Women Saved Cricket. Hi, Marion. Hello, Sarah. You dedicate this book to your friends at the Australian National University's Women's Cricket Club and you write, she who has never indulged in the noblest of all pastimes has missed one of the great enjoyments of life. Why is cricket such a source of enjoyment for you? It's something that I've always been attracted to. Um, They didn't have cricket at my school. I went to Ravenswood in Sydney and there was no cricket offered there until I was in sixth form and it was way too late to take up a new sport that was going to distract me from the high school certificate. Uh, So I didn't actually get to play cricket until I was 26 uh, and join a cricket team and that was the Australian National University team in Canberra when I was working there. So I I spent a long time thinking that I wanted to play cricket. We'd played a lot of um, family, at family gatherings, we'd had cricket games and things like that. And my father even cut down a a fence post so I could um, play in the backyard. Although I had to, in the transactional nature of childhood, I had to pay my sister to play with me, of course. Um, But yeah, it wasn't until I was 26 that I got to play and In the first year that I played cricket in the ACT, I won the best newcomer, much to the disappointment of all the 14-year-olds that were around. (laughs) So you were playing against kids that age? Well, it was a mix. It was a mix. But best newcomer (laughs) is usually someone that's, you know, under 15, I think, rather than 26. Did you used to watch cricket on TV as a kid? I did. I'm old enough to have watched the ABC televised cricket and they didn't have a score there was no score on the screen. I sat there and scored the game um, because it wasn't on the screen. You had to kind of concentrate and I guess they would probably switch to the scoreboard at some point. But right. I, I, that wasn't enough for me. I had to actually sit there and, and score the game myself. That really required you to pay attention then, unlike cricket now, you can yeah. wander in and wander out, do something downstairs, come back up, not yeah. much has happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you started playing at 26, what different appreciation did that give you about the game that you already loved to watch? Well, cricket is described as a game where something's always about to happen. <laughs> And I I enjoyed all the aspects of cricket. Cricket turns on a moment. Um, The game, won or lost, can turn on a a very small moment and you've got to recognise that moment. When I watch a test series now or any game of cricket, I can see those moments where the game shifts 
and it's the it's the thinking about cricket and the strategy that I really liked. But but heck, you know, training tra- cricket training is fun. You know, a lot of sports you go to training and oh, you know you've got to run around the oval or something. But um, you know, cricket training it was great fun, and the and it was the camaraderie of the women as well. So in the it, I was playing in the nineteen eighties, so cricket was kind of an expression of my feminism at the time, um, and probably also expression of my sexuality at the time. When you started playing cricket, Marion, did you have the sense that women play the game differently than men? Is, is there any kind of lines you can draw that way or, or is, the, is the game similar regardless of the gender of the person yeah, playing? I, I wasn't aware of any differences because, of course, I haven't played, you know, um, men's cricket, but I, we did play indoor cricket against a lot of men's teams and they were just cranky if you beat them. <laughs> I mean, you know, they try and bowl faster and faster and faster at you and that's not always the way to get out someone who's got the skills of batting. I mean, you you need a bit more, you know, you need to be a bit wilier than that. Um, so that was that was always a, a funny situation where they just try and, and blast you out and it doesn't work. <laughs> cricket has been around since the 16th century, I think. When did women start playing? In England, they started, obviously, um, where cricket originated. They started uh, in the, I think it's 17th century, 1650s or something like that. We know that from old paintings of, of, of cricket. But the first games in Australia were around the 1860s and there was a big competition for women in the 1890s. Um, and, in fact, Emily Watman, who was Don Bradman's mother, huh. played, in the, played cricket in the 1890s in Australia... We all know the folklore of Donald Bradman hitting the water, the water tank. tank with the, the cricket stump and the golf ball. And, in fact, his mother, Emily Watman, bowled to him, her left armers, after school every single day. And one of those things goes down in history as, as his legend and the other is forgotten. Um, and that, that really excited me when I, when I realised that she'd, she'd done that. So it was a popular sport for women in the 1890s. Yeah. What, what happened in the decades after that? Well, sports come and go for women. Um, often it can rely on just one player or one person or, or you know, whoever's organising the team. And, and you know, things, things interfere. Uh, we think that cricket started off from a very small base and then is what it is now. But there are ebbs and flows in the game always. And the 1930s was when cricket for women in Australia came back really strong. How was it, Marion, that you first got to meet some of those pioneers of women's uh, women players in the 1930s? I worked at the Australian National University in the history department and we had a cricket team that played... There's two history departments at ANU, one in the undergraduate and one in the research school, and we used to play each other every year. Did you have a name? Or you're just the historians? I think so. Oh, I think come there on, was a, there's a missed there was opportunity. A called Cleo or, you know, whatever. <laughs> But, um, yes, well, it was quite funny because they used to say, oh, well, we have to cross Sullivan's Creek at ANU to play the other team. And, of course, you didn't have to. No-one had ever gone to the undergraduate area. So, anyway. Um, so you were working there. Yeah, and co, co-working co with the History Department was the Australian Dictionary of Biography. And they, they knew I was a cricketer and a historian. So they asked me to write on Margaret Peden, who was the first uh, cricket captain of Australia in 1934. And I didn't know anything about her, so um, after a year or so of research into her life. And once I had published that, a bit of a side hustle, (laughs) myself and another cricketer actually got a consultancy at the National Museum to catalogue two collections of men's cricket 
One was the Ernie uh, Main collection, who was from the 18, no, 1910s, and he was a co-player with Victor Trumper. And the other was the Bert Oldfield collection. And like all good consultants, at the end of this consultancy, we recommended that the museum collect the women's cricket from the 1930s. So there was a test in 1934 and a return test series in England in 1937. So you came back to your employers and said, more work needs to be done and we're just the people to do it. Yes, a good consultant. <laughs> uh, that's part of the uh, concluding brief, I believe. But, um... So these women, if they'd been playing in the 1930s, by the time you started to look for them in, in, in the late 80s, 1990, they would have been getting on, like... They 70s were, and 80s. They were. A few of them had passed away. Obviously, Margaret Peden had passed away, the captain, uh, because you don't get an entry in the Australian Dictionary of Biography until you passed away. Yes, so it, it was this huge detective story to find them because now we think, oh, we'll just Google them or we'll go on Facebook and find them, but there were no such aids in those days to do that. So we had to invent how we would do that. And it, it was an extraordinary journey because women don't stay in touch with each other. Um, they don't stay in touch with the, the state associations or the Australian. So people, we had to, it was a real detective work Where to find Where did you start? Them. Well, one amazing case was Ruby Monaghan, who'd played for Wollongong, and we learnt that her surname, and a lot of the women, of course, had married, so their names had changed. We knew that her surname was Lee, and so we went to the Illawarra phone book and we sat there and we phoned everyone in the Illawarra <laughs> phone book with the surname Lee and said, are you Ruby Monaghan who played cricket for Australia in 1934? <laughs> and now fortunately people were um, a bit more relaxed about that kind of phone call in 1990, <laughs> so we didn't get abused. But eventually one very frail voice said, yes, I am. And, I mean, that's magic. It's just magic. And so we arranged to go and see Ruby in her house. In and, the... and were these players who had kind of been forgotten, I guess, yeah. were, how did they feel about being rung up by these two historians? Well, they were surprised. But after we'd spoken to... I think we found, we found a few... Uh, the museum's budget didn't extend to us going to Western Australia or South Australia or anything like that. But we, we found the women in Wollongong and Sydney and Brisbane and Melbourne... And, you know, look, I had a funny feeling about the women because I think they always knew that someone would come looking and that was, that was kind of nice to actually be the person that was doing that because they always thought they should get more recognition. They weren't ever demanding that. They're not th th those kind of women. But I think they were very flattered and, but they kind of... They would say to people, you know, they'd sign autographs and they'd say, keep that autograph, we'll be famous one day, you know. <laughs> Um, and I think they, in, the, in somewhere deep down, they expected someone to come looking and, and it was lovely to be us, yeah. Were their cricketing games still very vivid in, in their minds all those years on? They were. They were very proud of their skill level and of the large crowds that had come to see them and their training. Um, although they kept saying they were naturals, you know, I trained Tuesday night, Thursday night and all day Saturday and, and half of Sunday, but I was a natural, <laughs> you know. Um, so clearly they had a lot of training. But they were very proud of that. They, they knew they could remember the highlights of their games, but they also were just... The women that went in 1937 to England 
had the most amazing experiences, like all, like male cricketers going to England to play the Ashes series, have the same kind of experiences. Did they sound like modern day sports people to you, like, or, or did it feel like a different era of of sport? That's a good question. We. Because we were both cricketers, we could talk to them on a cricket level, so they didn't have to explain anything to us. I guess they didn't even have to explain, in a sense, their passion about the game. So I think it was a nice equal conversation. One of the players that you interviewed was Amy Hudson. What stories did she have of playing cricket as a kid in Annandale in Sydney? Yeah, Amy was lovely, Amy. She she was a working-class woman and her family was working-class and... Um, of course, none of these women play cricket at school, so they have to invent their own teams, in a sense. And so when she said she wanted to play cricket, her mother put an ad in the local theatre. And <laughs> What do you an, mean? Like at the, at at the, the cinema? cinema? Yeah, yeah. Like, a, like, you know, instead of hungry, you have some Maltesers. There was, do you want to join a girls' cricket team? I suspect it was a, a written ad somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> bring down my aspirations to earth. But that's amazing, yeah. put a notice up yeah. to get other yeah. players. So her mother, you know, her mother did it for her um, and so they got a team together and then they needed, of course, they, you need an oval to play on. And at Annandale there was the, um, some people may know the the cement, big cement aqueducts at Hogan Park. So they got the council to put in a cement pitch at, at Hogan Park for the women um, and, of course, as soon as the pitch went down, the men took it over and they didn't quite know what to do because, I mean, they weren't able to kick the men off. But So they'd go down for training and there'd be a bunch of blokes yeah, playing on yeah, their pitch? Yeah, But Amy's mother worked, of course, it was the Depression, 19, early 1930s, um, and she worked somewhere of handing out the food coupons to people. And so Amy tells the story of when... When these um, men came up to collect their food coupons, she said, you can't have them unless you get off the cricket oval, <laughs> which they did. Well done, <laughs> Mrs Hudson. <laughs> so women are very inventive of, of how they manage those kind of things. Amy kind of thought that might have been a bit illegal when she was telling us that, but uh, we didn't think we'd, she'd get her mother into trouble. My mum must have absolutely been passionate about, uh, about cricket. So did these girls become kind of local identities then? Yeah, they did. And that was largely to do with the, the press. They had a local notoriety, but also in this era, I think the first journalist to take an interest in cricket was Pat Jarrett, who wrote to Keith Murdoch. She was a sportswoman, she's a good swimmer, swam with uh, Frank Beaurepaire, and she said she'd like a job at the Herald and he employed her on a retainer of £5 a week to write on women in sport, Wow! which she did. And she always said that she didn't want to uh, write on a sport that she'd never played. So she was a cricketer. And it wasn't just results of games. These were large pieces in the, in the Herald introducing the women to, to the audience and saying, you know, what, who was going to play this weekend and, and what they were like. And then when the Australian Women's Weekly started in 1933... Ruth Preddy wrote a double-page spread on women in sport for the Australian Women's Weekly, doing the same thing. So actually, you know, introducing the women, introducing the sport, talking about it, saying what clothing, you know, what equipment you should have and doing training things in the newspaper, in the magazine. And same uh, Kathleen Cummins in the Sydney Morning Herald had, had one page a week on women in sport. So this idea that women sports journalists emerged in the, in the 90s yeah. is, is yeah. not true at all? No, not at all. 
And, of course, this means that the women from this era had the most amazing scrapbooks of their clippings and positive clippings because women were writing about it. They were controlling the message. Were there any naysayers in, in the way that women's cricket was reported? Was there, were there not all journalists as sympathetic? What were some of the dangers that thought might meet young women if they took up this sport? Oh, well, there's always male journalists who... Um, there was a double thing in the Bodyline era, so I'll talk about the first one first. They, they actually, um, you know, always say that sport's dangerous for women. It will make their their hands too big and, <laughs> and you know, they'll be too muscly. And, and I always, when I read these things in the newspaper, I think, OK, well, we'll stop doing any factory work or looking after children or any, you know, cleaning the house because, you know, you've got the same physical, you know, constraints on that. And one of the nastiest things when women in sport is depicted in the newspapers are other cartoons. And why, uh, what did they look like? For one line that um, that England was going to tour Australia in 1934, the punch cartoonist has a whole page that has, you know, depicts the mannish English women um, coming over and bowling at the poor Australian bowlers. I mean, that's a reflection of body line. Um, but they're just, they're just, you know... Nasty. Nasty cartoons. And we, I think all women know those nasty... They were directed at the suffrage, suffragist movement. They've always been directed at women that, that, that kind of put their heads up a bit, yeah. You interviewed two Melbourne players, Peggy Antonio and Nell McClarty. What sort of shape were they in oh, in their that, 70s? Oh. Peggy Antonio was a legs, fantastic, world-class leg spin bowler. She was five foot one and I think she was four foot nine by the time we <laughs> interviewed her. And Nell McClarty was over six foot tall. She was a, a fast bowler. And they wanted to be interviewed together. They were both quite shy women. Interviewing the two women together was fantastic because the interaction that you get between the two, you get things that you'd never get if you spoke to them solo. But they were, they were stunning women and they too had, had kind of fa- separately found their own um, cricket clubs. And, and How had they got into cricket? Because if Amy Hudson's mum was there putting ads in the local cinema, what about Nell and, and Peggy? Well, Nell McLeodie... I th- the women play in the street with um, boys and men. It's during the depression, so they're playing in the tennis in the in the street with a tennis ball. Um, and Nell McLeodie was spotted by her local paper man Leo, who knew a cricket team that was looking for women, and he recommended her. That's and she went along, and they said, you know, well, she said, I've only ever bowled with a tennis ball, and I think she took seven for twelve or something in her first game. <laughs> And, you know. So the paper man acted as a kind of yeah. sports agent yeah, for her. Yeah, well, <laughs> you had to know. It was very serendipitous. I mean, Peggy Antonio knew someone whose sister knew someone and, and she got involved in a team as well. So it was quite extraordinary the way that all these women actually found a team. Sometimes they saw saw a team playing and, you know, on a field, but there was no, you know, other than at the Annandale Theatre, there was no kind of notice about <laughs> women in sport. And... When it came to these sort of amateur games and, and inter-club games, like what sort of warm-up and, and training would they do before a game? What did they remember? Well, Neil McLeodie says, uh, the fast bowler says, that um, if, they, if they started to warm up, people would think they were showing off. <laughs> <laughs> so they'd just go out there and bowl. They'd just go and bowl and, and just play. So, um, yeah, but they were extraordinary crowds at those matches. Why? What kind of numbers? You're talking a 5,000. Wow. And there was, there's a lot of stories about, 
you know, men saying, oh, Saturday, you know, Saturday I was going to the races and I'll just duck in and have a look at the, the girls playing cricket and, you know, uh, you know, went to mock, stayed, stayed to praise kind of rubbish. Um, and, and were those numbers, was that representative of just the, the audiences, the crowds at sport in general in, in the 30s or were I they big numbers back then? They were big numbers. Um, it had gone way past family and friends um, and because of the newspaper coverage, people had their own heroines in games. And so when Collingwood played Clarendon, you know, there was, it was, you know, kind of standing room only. And they would barrack and they would, you know, I think Nell McClarty tells a story of someone yelled at her that uh, she must eat meat, raw meat, because she was such a fast bowler. And she kind of said back to the crowd, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> so was it mainly a game in Australia played by working class women? The women are out of the factories, of course, and there were some middle class women that were from offices. Some of the drivers of cricket in Australia it was Margaret Peden and her sister, Barbara Peden, and they were the daughters of Sir John Peden, who was the New South Wales Legislative Council president and professor of law at Sydney Uni. So the doors opened for the Pedens when Margaret Peden wanted something done. Uh, things happened. There's a nice story that Ruby Monaghan, who became Ruby Lee, who you met up with in, in Illawarra, that she remembers about Margaret Peden's dad. What's that? He would come to all the games, especially at the Sydney Cricket Ground, and I think he, he realised that Ruby, you know, she was a very working-class woman and the way she spoke um, and acted, and uh, he took her under his wing a bit and every time she took a catch or scored a four, he'd raise his top hat and say, that's my Ruby. <laughs> So, Marion, I have to confess that my understanding of, of cricket in general, but certainly of the bodyline, Führer, comes pretty much from the Paul Kelly song on Don Bradman. Two sides out there today, but only one of them are playing cricket. Fill it out for me a little more. What made that series in men's cricket so notorious? Australia had expected to retain the Ashes in 1932 and England had come over with a plan to not have that happen. Uh, and and I think you said in the introduction about bowling at the man rather than at the wicket. But cricket itself was something that was regarded... We all know this, the saying, it, it's not cricket. It was something that was true and pure about sport. And this was seen as something that was threatening to sportsmanship. Um, and, and it to... was a, a bowling strategy partly because Bradman was such an exceptional cricketer that the English came up with in, in order to try to... Yeah, definitely. To have a chance. ..to stymie his, his run scoring. But Bradman being Bradman, he, he still adapted to that. I mean, he got out a couple of times very cheaply, but he, he recovered. And was it against the rules, the sort of bowling that the English were doing? Not at the time. No, there was always something called leg theory where you would bowl at the leg stump and try and restrict scoring. But this went another step further. This was actually trying to hit the bat batter um, and have a stacked leg side field of five players behind leg to take those deflections. Were cricketers um, wearing protective gear? They, they, had, they, had, no, they had nothing. The men would have had uh, batting pads and a box uh, and gloves, and that's it. There's no helmet, there's no thigh guard, there's no arm guard or anything like that. And so when the English team unveiled this bowling tactic in Australia, what kind of reaction was there from the public? There was absolute outcry. And, of course, there's no television to see it, so it's covered very well on radio, so you can imagine the, the drama of the radio. So everyone at the ground started to count out the English players um, and, and to jeer them, 
Um, police were called to a lot of grounds. The whole society was just overtaken in 1932 by this Bodyline series and everyone was talking about it. And how significant was it in terms of relations between Australia and England, do you think, as a historian? Well, Australia was very enmeshed with England or the British Empire at this time. Everything about Australia, its judicial, its military, its governance systems are based on English systems and English people. You know, all our governor-generals and governors that come out are all from the empire, they're not Australians. Australia had borrowed money from England in 1932 during the Depression and it was calls to not repay those loans. Over the, the cricket? Over the cricket, <gasps> yeah, yeah. So this this was something that you know, you think was threatening not just for the way people thought about the sport but about the relationship between these two countries. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Podcast, broadcast, you're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Did women players try this new controversial technique? Did it make its way from the men's game into the women's? Everyone tried this controversial technique. You know, a a fast bowler is a a menacing thing and trying to be... I mean, the point about the Bodyline series with the, the men was that Australia at this time actually didn't have any male fast bowlers that could retaliate in kind. And men were quite reluctant. Former players in Australian men play, male players were reluctant to rule out a, a tactic that they thought they might use in the future. So while it was widely condemned, it was very slow for the Australian Cricket Board to complain about the tactic and to, and to start the steps of having it um, removed from the cricket laws. Was there particular pushback, though, against the idea of women using a tactic that was so physical and, and potentially, potentially threatening to other players? There were certainly rumours that went around the 1933 National Championships for women that uh, Nell McClarty and Amy Hudson and a few other bowlers could bowl body line, and they were against it. They would then say you know, we don't approve of body line. They, most cricketers at the time and, and a lot of the women when we talked to them said that they didn't like the tactic. It wasn't the way cricket was meant to be played. So they were very keen to actually play and be seen to play the game in the right spirit. So this is the context, this, this furor around body line in men's cricket and the growth, I guess, of popularity of women playing cricket in the 1930s that leads to the, the announcement that there's going to be a test series between the English and the Australian women's teams. And to start things off, the English were going to travel out to Australia in December of 1934. There was Margaret Peden was the, was the captain. Was she a good choice, do you think? I think she was a good choice because she had the connections and sometimes those are just as important. Um, I think she was a bit aloof to the team but one of the troubles with Margaret Peden was that her sister Barbara played as well, who, who was, I think, a better cricketer than Margaret, but Margaret was the organiser and she was president of the New South Wales Cricket Association and things like that. But, of course, there was a bit of controversy because Barbara kept getting in the Australian team getting selected over some women who perhaps thought they they should be selected. But the women we talked to were... It was very hard to get them to talk anything, to, to be critical of Margaret Peden at all because she'd passed away. 
and that's not what women do. They don't speak ill of the dead. So... So the Peden sisters had that wealthy background and I guess when it came to having to travel around the country to play in these games against the English and leading up to the test, that was feasible for them. What about the other players who were factory workers or or unemployed? How did they raise the money to even participate? Women are very resourceful when they want to play sport and it means that they're not beholden to the men's association. They're not relying on them ever for money. So they hold fundraisers, your your club would support you. Um, one of the women, Anne Palmer, I think her uncle or something like that gave her, I think, nearly £100 to kit herself out. She was a very good left-arm wrist spin bowler. And what were the uniforms that women were wearing? What would have um, she had to buy with well, that £100? Gosh, gosh, at this time, it, it varied across Australia, but most of the women in Australia were playing in what were called divided skirts, and they were quite like long. Like collots or something. Well, there's a difference because when the English team came out in 1934, they were wearing collots, which was slightly neater and slightly shorter than the divided skirt. And when I see photos of those, the first test with the Australian women, the batting pads are getting caught in their long divided skirts. But they never complained about the skirts really, although they did go to David Jones and get collots all made for them before the second test. <laughs> So, I mean, Australian uniforms changed a lot when overseas teams toured Australia because we were we were quite isolated and it was only when those ideas came in. The women, of course, had to wear these stockings. They stockings. were white lyle stockings. And, of course, there's no pantyhose in these days. They're all held up by this suspender belt. And so they're playing a very athletic game with a suspender belt on with these stockings and... Peggy Antonio would say, very, was a very dry woman, and we asked her about the stockings and she said they would have looked better on a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the English women had introduced this stocking thing um, <laughs> and it was quite funny. England, when they finished touring Australia in 1934, went to New Zealand and the New Zealand women's team thought that they'd wear stockings in honour of the English women and they hated them <laughs> they wore them for one game and then ditched them. <laughs> well, the English team arrived with their captain, Betty Archdale, and she's another player that you met when you were doing your tour around, um, around players in 1990. What was she like? It was quite interesting because I knew of Betty Archdale. She was one of the people that was quite easy to, to find because she was a personality, I guess, in the, 19, um, in the 1990s. Um, she'd been the headmistress of Abbotsley School and I'd gone to Ravenswood, so I knew about her. So it was... At first I thought, my goodness, this is like interviewing your headmistress, even though I was in my 30s. Um, you made sure you, know, you had shoe, shoes were clean and <laughs> hair was tidy. Yeah, but she lived in a house... She lived in a house at Galston, which is just north of Sydney, um, that Barbara Peden had actually... Um, who was an architect... Um, had designed for You're her. Kidding. So they, they're the connections. We turned up at her house and, you know, um, she was very hospitable and very jolly. And all through the interview, it was, it was thigh-slapping and it was great fun for her to remember all these things. And she was the only one who would... Margaret Peden was a very good friend of hers, but she'd say, well, I didn't think she was a very good captain. Or, right, you know, so she and was, she was the only to... one that was prepared to do that. Towards the end of the interview with... with um, Betty Archdale, she said to me, would you like a sherry? And, you know, and when you're a museum person and you go to someone's house, you always accept the 
And I said, oh, yes, that'd be, you know, that'd be lovely. I'm not a big sherry drinker. It turned out in a schooner glass. <laughs> and I thought, I think you've had a couple before I got here. Is that here. why she was so jolly? I think you've had a couple. Schooner of sherry, yeah. that's and, a... So you're paying your dues yeah. with well, that. I, I had to, yeah, I had to drink it. It was dry <laughs> sherry too. What was her background, Betty? How did she come to start playing cricket in the first um, place? She played cricket at school in Scotland and it was one term hockey, one term lacrosse, one term cricket. So she liked, She said she liked cricket because she, could, she had a really good arm. She could throw from the boundary. She said she could field out on, in the outfield all day and just think about her own thoughts and not have to worry about anything. But um, she was a lawyer, which is why she was appointed captain. Um, she wasn't necessarily the best player on the English side. Or, but she was very good with the press in Australia because they bombarded her with questions about body line. And what, what did she say about it? Well, she always reassured the press in Australia that um, there was two questions. Are you going to bowl body line? And what are you going to wear? <laughs> but so she always reassured the press that no, England was not here to bowl body line and that they would be playing cricket in the right spirit. In the right spirit. I don't want to, to um, mimic those journalists back from the day, but what did she look like in, in the <laughs> 1930s? She was a, a very she's a very tall, strong uh, woman with an eaten haircut. What's that? So it's kind of a, a very short haircut with um, a clip on the side, so parted down the side and, and brushed over. So and very short because a lot of the women had very long hair at this point. And I think even when Amy Hudson played at Sydney Cricket Ground, she remembered um, men complaining and saying, "Oh, they've got hair. Women have got hair." And she and she would say, "Oh, the hair, the hair." <laughs> Well, that they shouldn't have hair. Well, they should. You know, it wasn't seen on a cricket field right. for people to have hair. The hair, the danger yeah. of the hair. Yeah. So the English team arrived with with Betty as their captain, and and what kind of schedule did they did they have before them while they were here? Uh, they toured right around Australia. They they landed. They came by boat, of course, Fremantle, and um, they played the Western Australian team. They played all the state teams except South Australia and um, Tasmania. There were three test series, one in Brisbane, one in Sydney, one in Melbourne. But Margaret Peden had organised a tour of England around a lot of New South Wales country towns. So they went to Goulburn and Canberra and Leeton and Junee and Daniloquin. And to play cricket? Yeah. Or just to oh, meet yeah, to yeah, play yeah. cricket? Oh, they arrive in the town by train or by coach and... You know, the brass band arrives, they go to the mayoral reception, they have dinner, they have, you know, they get up the next day and they, they play a game of cricket and then they have dances and they give speeches about the closeness of empire and, yeah, it was a huge, huge deal. And people in these towns, would there be a public holiday? Really? Yeah, for the, to go and see the, the women play cricket. So yeah. they were big, given the crowds you'd mentioned in terms of the local games, what kind of, of crowds came out for this first Test series? Oh, for the Test matches? The first Test was in Brisbane and, of course, it started to rain, which ruined the crowd. But I think there was um, about 10,000 a day at these games. Yeah. So, the, um, so they were playing these, these sort of warm-up matches yes. before they go in, into the Test series. One um, of the, the players, Nance Clements, who you interviewed, she showed you a souvenir that she had taken from the MCG in, during this. What did what did Nance have yeah. rolled up in a Nance, living room? Nance was a character. <laughs> she um, she collect. She was, I guess you could say she was a kind of twelfth person. Uh, she wasn't ever. She didn't play a test in the nineteen thirty four series or the nineteen thirty seven. But she was a big part of the team, and she'd played for Victoria against England on the MCG. You know, which is hallowed ground, and and what every cricketer would want to do. 
And she'd scored 21 against England for Victoria, which is a fairly decent score. I mean, she's a middle-order batter. And she went over to the scoreboard and in those days, uh, it, of course, there was no electronic scoreboard. It was a plank that had a piece of cotton on it that was painted with your name that went up on the scoreboard to show what runs you've got. And it said Clements, which is her surname. And so she went over and she souvenired this piece of cotton from the scoreboard but attendant. She, just, oh, she didn't just nick it. She had to no, have a no, conversation. No. She, she actually um, talked, you know, she's a bit of a charmer, so she talked, you know, her way to have it. And then when I went to see her at her house, she had she had so much stuff, you know, her fabulous collection. She'd even had, even when they went to the Houses of Parliament, she'd have the Hansard for the day from, you know, from the British Parliament, you know. But she, I was asking her about the Bodyline series and she said, turn off your tape recorder for a minute. And I thought, oh, OK. Um, so I did that. She went out of the room and she came back with this black roll of cotton and she spread it out dramatically over the lounge room floor and it said Clements. And I said, I went, oh, you know, and she explained to me it was from the MCG. But she said, I don't think, you know, I should have it. And I got the impression that she didn't think, she thought the person who'd given it to her might lose their job. So I'm standing there, I'm standing there, and this is in 1990, about an incident in 1934, so I'm doing the maths of 56 years later, and I'm thinking, if the guy was 60, he's 116, or even if he was 30, he's 86. Statue of limitations, it's all good. And and so I'm doing these mental calculations in my head and trying to say to her, you know, I think it'll be all right. She flips it over, and there's a name on the other side. And it says, Larwood. Now, and why he, is that so astonishing, Marion, to you as a cricket fan? <laughs> <laughs> well, here is the original banner from the MCG from 1932 when Larwood was sending the bowler, Harold Larwood, was sending down his thunderbolts at, at Don Bradman. And so here we have this object that on one side says Clements and on the other side says Larwood. She's got a lot of other memorabilia that brings the two series together as well. But, my goodness, I mean, you can't make up an object <laughs> like that. Um, and it was extraordinary. Did she donate it? Can I yes, ask, Marion? Yes, she did. It, so where is that It's now? in the National Museum. Yeah. So uh, the series that was played, I mean, it was obviously a success socially and in terms of numbers. Who won, the English or the Australians? <laughs> well, the English won very <sighs> easily when they came out in 1934, mainly because they'd had six weeks, seven weeks on the boat where they practised every day and they knew each other, whereas when the Australian women played together, they'd only ever played against each other in state games and there was no training, there was no time between the tests um, and so they drew, because we have um, both Peggy Antonio and Anne Palmer were extraordinary um, bowlers. Uh, I think uh, in the first test, Anne Palmer took seven for 18 against England. Um, and years later, when the Australian men were playing in Brisbane, barrackers would yell out, send for Anne Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> the men's team weren't doing so well. Yeah, so <laughs> Australia did lose that first series and uh, pretty well they, England didn't lose a game on the whole tour. I prefer but, to say cricket was the winner, Marion. <laughs> that's one of those times you can say well, that. Well, cricket was the winner in 1937 because, you know, the, she was on the other foot when Australia went to England. So Australia went to England. So they that's their turn to go off on this great sea voyage of, yeah. of five weeks or so. How yeah. did they spend their time on board the... 
the women's team? They had a huge list of what uniform they had to take with them and one of them was a kind of jumpsuit to do exercises on the, on the boat early in the morning. <laughs> Um, and they were embarrassed about doing that. But they play cricket on board. I mean, these were one-class ships that they went on. So they, they'd do that. And there was a whole range of rules about what they couldn't, couldn't do. But I think they, they weren't going to um, break many of those rules. There's a great photo of, of that you have in the book of the women on board, including someone in a pith helmet. Who's wearing That's that? Margaret Peden, the captain. <laughs> I mean, the Peden sisters are travelling to and from England a lot of the time. They're not... This isn't the first time they've been to England. They do... And, and Barbara Peden was actually living over in England at, when the 37 team came over. But, yes, my goodness, she's got a pith helmet on on the boat. <laughs> there was also a journalist accompanying the players. Who was that and, and well, what's her importance? Well, that was Pat Jarrett. Murdoch had actually sent Pat in 1934 to Perth to cover the first games of the English. So in 1937, Pat Jarrett kind of said to Keith Murdoch, I think it's a good idea if I went to England with the cricket team. And he said, a jolly fine idea. And off she went. Extraordinary, yeah. And, and people that she worked with would say, my goodness, the Herald's sending a woman to England to cover the cricket. And, and of course that meant, sorry, that meant that um, the coverage of the cricket was by a woman coming back to Australia. So she'd file those stories. They'd be picked up by all the other players. So it was a very positive message about the cricket. As you say, the, the Peden sisters were lived in a circle or moved in a circle where travelling back and forth to England wasn't such a big deal, but it would have been a completely new thing for those working-class women. And you've got a marvellous list of the sorts of things they were looking forward to doing once they arrived in England for the first time. I think things like... Um, climbing a tree and picking a chestnut, seeing some of those obvious tourist sites. But Nell McClarty wanted to see how London traffic is controlled and to ride on the top of a bus. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, Pat Jarrett interviewed them all and said, what are, what are they looking forward to? And they came out with the most extraordinary things of what they wanted to do in England. Um, but it got people, people knew them better after that, yeah. Where were they staying? I mean, what kind of places were they billeted to once they arrived? Oh, because, because cricket in England was largely from the upper classes and upper middle classes, they were billeted with um, a whole range of honest states and very fancy houses. And I think Amy Hudson said, oh, they were posh. Um, so they'd come down to breakfast and there'd be butlers and there'd be trays of, there'd be trays of food and they were embarrassed about those things. And I think Nance Clements sent... A, a kind of maid away who wanted to, to help her dress and things like that. I mean, these women were not used to that kind of lifestyle at all. They even went to 10 Downing Street. Yeah, um, the Prime Minister's wife, Lucy Baldwin, was a, a cricketer from the White Heather Club. She played cricket, um, so they were hosted at, at Parliament House, but they, they went everywhere. They, they were hosted, and as men's cricket teams are as well in England, they hosted at large dinners and functions and it, it was... Extraordinary. They had great seats for the coronation of King George VI. What did they remember about that? These things tie them to the empire. I mean, as we'll find out quite soon, a coronation ties your country to the empire. Um, and they were, they were fascinated by it all. A few of them kind of said, oh, I didn't think it'd be much, but then they had to get there at 3am to take their seats. And Neil McClarty was impressed by the toilets, of course. <laughs> very practical woman, very practical woman. I love Neil. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so they were, and the, but of course the Peden sisters were 
uh, Barbara Peden in particular was organising a kind of, um, you know, we want the king outside the uh, outside Buckingham she Palace. She started a chant, yes, did she? Yeah, <laughs> what Australians do when they're in England. Yeah. So how did our, how did they perform on the cricket field in this second series? They did very well. They won two of the tests and drew the third, so the, the series after 1937 was squared. But they had an amazing time. They really did. And uh, quite a few of them stayed in England for a couple of months. Uh, they'd made such good friends and and uh, uh, played in Cricket Week, which is a big English uh, tournament and everything like that. So, so did it have the... I mean, whether it was an intended effect or, or stated or not, this idea that the women's game might act as a counter to the negative publicity around body line. Did that happen, do you think, when you look back at the, the coverage at the day and the way yeah. the women's game was talked about? It certainly did in the press. I mean, a lot of people were astonished at the high level of skill of the women. They hadn't expected it, them to be that good. They'd put a lot of work into training and, and playing. Um, and they would do things like the press was amazed that uh, they when they took drinks on the field, they'd offer the Bat, you know, a few of the fielding team, they'd offer the batters a drink, your, your opposition and the umpires. And I think, you know, the papers would say, imagine Bradman offering Larwood a drink. You know, it was just a really different way to play the game. And people really responded to that. And, and cricket needed that. It needed a, a bit of a, a, a rethink about what, what the true, pure cricket was about and what it meant to people. Is it because they didn't have the same professional weight or expectation that those sportsmanlike qualities were kept alive or, or how do you make sense of it? Um, I, th I think they were just playing the game with such a passion and they were, they were just interested in, in playing it. And, I mean, women once... We see that in AFLW. I mean, you open the door to women playing and, and they rush through it um, and, and they love it and, you know, it's it's... It's ridiculous that women are, are prevented from playing a range of sports. So given the success of these two series, was the plan that this would continue, that, that you know, if war hadn't broken out in 1939, is, is the sense that these, this exchange would have kept on going between England and Australia? Yeah, there, was a, there was a return tour to Australia by England planned for 1939 and 40, and... Um, Betty Archdale, even though she, she hadn't been selected for the first two tests in, in England, but she'd been brought back when they lost the first, England lost the first two tests for the third test. And she'd been selected for the 1939 tour to Australia and been made captain again. She had a blazer made with all the pockets that they get. And then, of course, the war intervened and the tour was cancelled. And then what happened to women's cricket after that? You know, you've said these sports come and go generationally differently. What what happened in the wake of well, of that? A lot of women uh, did keep playing sport in the services during the war. Nance Clements, you know, joined joined the services and and she was a, she played every sport. And these women do; they play a lot of sport. But but a lot of these women, some they get married um, at at this kind of era. And after the war, some of the about five or six of the women kept playing, but a lot of them stopped playing. And there wasn't the same impetus there. There was another tour. The next tour to England was in 1948. And actually Amy Hudson went on that really? as well. Yeah. So she kept yeah, playing? she kept playing. Was that her mum still cheering her yeah, on from the sidelines, do you it think? Was. <laughs> what about the wonderful Nell who wanted to ride on top of a bus and appreciated the port at the coronation? What happened to her after coming back to Australia? Well, Nell McLeodie never gave up cricket. She continued it. 
it was obviously a huge passion. And she worked in a factory in Melbourne and she used to say she loved cricket because she loved being outside. And she'd sit in the factory and she'd look outside and she'd just want to be playing cricket. She kept coaching. Uh, She coached one of the big cricketers from the 1950s and 60s, Betty Wilson, um, and she coached right through. And she thought she wouldn't be able to coach men, but people would come and they'd bring their brother um, and they'd hear about what a good coach she was. And she had a huge following as a coach. And uh, when she did have a few back problems, like all fast bowlers, and they held a testimonial for her later in life. And it was the biggest, um, the most money raised in any testimonial for a sportswoman, so... Yeah. And how does the current Australian women's cricket team stack up in your professional opinion as a historian and a cricket fan, Marion? How do players now compare to the women back then in the 30s? Well, I, the women themselves, in when we talked to them in the 1990s, they didn't ever criticise newer players. They, some of them had followed the cricket and they didn't compare themselves too much, although they thought their skills were, were better in the 1930s, which was interesting. Look, cricket's become a very professional, very highly skilled game in, in a way that even I, from my time of playing cricket, I don't recognise the skills that they, they have now. And we're about to move into this the huge WPL Women's Professional League in India, where in the ne- next week, a lot of women will get quite large monetary contracts. And um, what about you? Are you still ever going to the crease? Oh, I wish I could, Sarah. I wish I could, but um, I play golf three or four times a week now. So <laughs> that's <laughs> it's an my excellent lot. place to go. <laughs> Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations, Marion. Thank you, Sarah. Marion Stell was my guest today and Marion's book is called The Bodyline Fix. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.